Well, turn with me to John chapter 16, and we'll examine verses 16 through 24 this morning. And while you're finding that, I'll tell you a little story. When I was in college, and I really remember this moment like it was yesterday, I was walking late one night with my roommate on campus. It was a beautiful campus, and my roommate was a believer. He was younger than a traditional age college student. He was a sophomore who was just 17 he was a very bright young man, and we were talking about the massive presence of charismatic students on campus. And it was a concern, particularly because so many of them were immersed in the prosperity gospel, the false gospel uh, of prosperity, that movement which was so uh, prevalent even at that time. And at that time in my own spiritual walk, I was trying to still wrap my mind around what I really believed theologically where I stood. And our discussion was around how that particular group with that sort of theology would deal with suffering, how they would deal with pain. And I'll never forget the astute statement made by this very young man, which really shaped my own thinking, shaped my own approach to Scripture, and to this day shapes my theology. One statement, he said something to the effect of, they don't have a way to deal with suffering because they don't have a concept of true faith. They don't have a way to deal with suffering because they don't have a concept of true faith. Now, that may be an overly simplistic statement, but it's really true. The charismatic prosperity gospel system of belief doesn't have an answer for pain and suffering except to say that if you have enough faith, God will get you out of it. That's it. What a disservice to the true church. What a disservice to actual regenerate believers in Christ to mislead them that generating some sort of emotion, which they now call faith, will manipulate God into taking me out of all my trials and pains. Now, to be certain, we do pray for the Lord's relief. We always hope in His mercy to deliver us from our deepest and gravest concerns. But what my roommate was getting at was that true faith isn't in the Lord is not the ability to maneuver God into doing what I want. True faith is trusting him and finding joy regardless of what God does because he will do what he wants. That's what faith is. And because the the reality is, is that two different sources tell us that this life will be laced with pains and trials. We could go along with some other church traditions and just put a microphone down here and say anybody with a pain or trial come up and share it. We'd be here all day. These two sources, the first source is Jesus Christ. This very same chapter, verse 33, in this world you will have tribulation. It's a word that means affliction. You will have distress. And the second source, although not very authoritative, is just our own experience. Our own experience as true believers in Christ, ultimately the idea that having enough faith makes the pains and trials of this world just go away, it really falls flat. Because real life simply doesn't let you believe that, does it? It doesn't happen. In fact, one source of pain and trial may be the very stand that you take for your faith. It may be that you believe the doctrines of grace. It may be that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance of sin. The biblical gospel of repentance and faith in Christ. Obedience to the Lord. That's part of the gospel. And that is expected of true believers, and you may suffer because of that, because the sign of genuine conversion, that is of repentance and obedience, that does have a cost. It has a cost. 
That's the topic we've been exploring in John 15 and 16. We're calling costly Christianity. We're almost done with these chapters, but so far in these two chapters, we've looked at the cost of fatherly discipline, committed perseverance, fruitful prayer, unconditional obedience, sacrificial love, gospel mission, hateful persecution, total rejection, gospel defense, scriptural loyalty. And today I'd like to look at the cost of current sorrow. And if you recall, this entire series is for the reason of, uh, of pushing back against the free grace movement, which says that you can, one time when you're six years old, make a verbal profession of faith in Christ and then live like the devil for the rest of your life and you're still saved. That you can incur no cost whatsoever for following Christ and you're still saved. And, and we're pushing back hard against that with the evidence of Scripture. Well, to get into our text now, we begin to see Jesus drawing his farewell discourse to a close. And now some big concepts, important concepts, they they really begin coming even more rapid fire in these final instructions to his apostles. We see big themes like going and coming and grief and joy and turmoil and peace, asking and receiving, seeing and then not seeing. There's all kinds of drama. There's all kinds of contrasts that really crescendo here to the end of chapter 16. And in this farewell discourse, Jesus is right in the middle of absolutely shattering some of the expectations that his disciples have. He's just hours, maybe even minutes from his arrest and the time in which all of them will desert Jesus for a time and the the realization that something terrible is about to happen to Jesus is just now coming to them. In fact, here in chapter 16, verse 6, Jesus said, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He's told them multiple times of his impending death and resurrection, but they haven't grasped this fully, but the light is beginning now to come on. And here's irony for you. Jesus is taking chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and by virtue of his prayer, chapter 17 also, to give comfort to them. Who should be comforting whom here? They should be comforting him. He's the one about to be crucified, and yet he graciously is giving them comfort. They did believe he was the Messiah sent from heaven. But listen to what had formed their belief about what Messiah would do when he got here. Their belief was formed by passages such as Isaiah 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's what they thought was going to happen. Their expectation of what Messiah would do when he arrived was formed by Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, listen to this, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That just happened three days earlier. That prophecy's been fulfilled. And the text goes on very excitedly. In verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he, that is Messiah, shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now Jesus is supposed to set up the messianic kingdom. They're here at this this final supper and they're looking at their watches, so to speak, saying, hey, it's time. 
That's why they occasionally argued about who got to have the highest position in the new messianic kingdom. But what they weren't grasping and now just dimly comprehending was that before Jesus would set up his kingdom on earth, first he must redeem kingdom citizens from sin. First he must fulfill Isaiah 53, 5, that he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. So we have to understand that the disciples are, are in the midst of an enormous shift in their reality, in their expectations. And so Jesus now gives them comfort. He gives them hope. He gives tremendous promises to them. John chapter 16, follow along with me, beginning in verse 16 as well. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, we quickly recognize the comfort and the care in these words of Jesus, and we recognize that they seem a little vague and hazy. And the question is, what is a little while? Even his disciples didn't understand. What is he talking about when he says, you will see me, then you won't see me? This is undoubtedly a challenging passage, and great men have differed on what Jesus is speaking about precisely here. Some feel that Jesus is being intentionally vague so that you can apply the situation to multiple, uh, multiple thoughts and, and ideas. Now, I don't know about that kind of reasoning, but I do agree that Jesus' words are intentional. He is exactly as precise as he meant to be. But we do need to take a few minutes to understand the major possibilities that this passage really presents to us. So I want to devote just a few minutes to introducing this text to you to get you familiar with the possibilities because it kind of affects the lens that you look at it with. Then we'll be better equipped to receive the encouragement from Jesus' words that I think we're really meant to receive. So let's engage our minds for a few minutes, fire up those brain cells to the glory of God, and let's think for a little bit. There are three major views on the meaning of this text. The first view is that Jesus is speaking of his death and resurrection. That that's what he's speaking of, his coming death and his resurrection. And there is some evidence for this view. Jesus repeats the phrase a little while, and many feel that it's a stretch to make that into any any long period of time, and that it primarily speaks of a, a short period of time. 
In fact, that same phrase has already been used several times in John to speak of the time leading up to Jesus' death and his resurrection. So that would make sense. And also, certainly his followers did weep and lament at the death of Christ. We recall John 20, verse 11, Mary Magdalene weeping outside the tomb. And of course, the disciples were, of course, overjoyed to see Jesus after his resurrection. We recall the excitement of Peter and John who ran all the way to the tomb to confirm that it was indeed empty. And so that view has some merit to it. There's some problems with that view, though. The disciples were discussing this going away and returning in light of what Jesus had already said, that he was going to the Father. So that's very unlikely to be referring to his death. Since just a little bit early in John 14, Jesus referred to going to the Father to speak of his ascension into heaven, not his death. And yes, the disciples were overjoyed to see Jesus after his resurrection, but he was only with them 40 days and he left again. This is hardly the everlasting joy that's promised in verse 22. And verse 23 says that in that day when they see Jesus again, you will ask nothing of me. That's not what happened after Jesus' resurrection. Acts 1 verse 3 records that Jesus spent his time with the disciples teaching them about the kingdom. And certainly that would include questions on their part. In fact, the last words of the disciples on this earth to Jesus before he ascended into heaven was a question. Acts 1 verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And basically, and I paraphrase, he answered, we'll see. And then he goes up. So that view has some problems. There's a second major view. Jesus is speaking of his ascension into heaven and then his second coming someday. Of his going away to heaven and his second coming. And this has maybe a little more weight to it. There are some some evidence in favor of this view. Evidences, rather. There seems to be some big end times type language happening in the text we have this illustration in verse 21 of the pregnant woman. This, and this is just a, this isn't metaphorical. It's just a nameless woman. It's just a, a word picture. But that's very reminiscent of the exact same picture given in Isaiah about the time right before Messiah's return. Isaiah twenty six seventeen speaks of this time as being like, quote, a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pain, pangs when she is near to giving birth. The reference to Jesus going to the Father, this certainly has a big eschatological picture in view as well. And if Jesus is trying to explain about his death and resurrection, he's already spoken very openly about that. He said, I'm going to die and in three days I'll be raised. And so if he's becoming more vague, that doesn't seem to serve any purpose. And so that view has some merit to it of his ascension and his second coming. But there's also problems with that view. The illustration of the woman giving birth and her pains is used elsewhere, such as Isaiah 26. But the pains in Isaiah 26 are associated with the catastrophic events of the great tribulation on the earth right before Christ's return. That's not the case here. In this case, the illustration of the pregnant woman is used of the personal sorrow of the disciples themselves. So same illustration, different contexts, completely different purposes. And if Jesus is speaking to them here about the joy that they will experience at the second coming, which we don't deny at all, it seems disjointed that all of a sudden in verses 23 and 24, he's encouraging their prayer life now. He suddenly jumps back and forth between time frames. 
Also, Jesus says several times, in a little while. This is the Greek word mikros. We get micron from this. It just means little. And it's all it means. It can be used in, a, in many different ways. It can mean that a, a person is little or a time frame is little or even that you're the smallest in importance in a group of people. It's the same word used to speak of children as little ones in Matthew 18.6 or the mustard seed as the smallest in Matthew 13.32. The word is used 46 times in the New Testament and every single time with one possible exception Mikros is never used metaphorically to mean something that's actually big, but we're just saying it's small. It's never used that way. In other words, every time Mikros is used in reference to time, it really means a short time. A few days, a couple of months, maybe a couple of years at the longest. It's never used to speak of a long age or an epoch of time. And in John's gospel in particular, every other time Jesus used Micros, it always was no longer than a few months, every time. One more view, the one which I think has the fewest difficulties and at best fits the immediate context of Jesus' instruction to the disciples, and it's a little bit of a surprise, that Jesus isn't speaking primarily of his death and resurrection, nor is he speaking of his ascension and his second coming. Very simply, he's speaking of the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now, let's test that theory against the text. Verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. It, this best fits the usage of Mikros in that the coming of the Holy Spirit from the moment Jesus says these words would be about two months away. And so, from a language standpoint, that fits. How about verse 17? So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. The, the disciples connected their question here about what he meant in his saying, because I am going to the Father. Look back at verse 7 of chapter 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So speaking of the coming Holy Spirit, in chapter 14, verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. He equates himself with the Holy Spirit. This is very consistent with the Apostle Paul declaring in Romans 8 verse 9 that the Christian has the Spirit of Christ dwelling in him. This is consistent with Jesus' own promise that he would make before his ascension. Matthew twenty-eight twenty, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's test it against verses 20 through 22. They will be sorrowful at the death of Christ. They will be joyful at his resurrection. But verse 22 says, no one will take your joy from you. This can't be the ascension of Christ into heaven because that did cause grief. That caused a trial. The permanent joy he's promised here is more appropriately attributed to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22 lists the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, what? Joy. Let's test it against verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. This is not speaking of prayer requests. This is literally speaking of you won't ask me questions. The Greek verb here to ask is used only of Jesus' Jesus prayers. 
in this gospel. It's never used to the prayers of anybody else. When the disciples are the subject with this verb, it means they're asking questions. They're, making, they're not making requests, they're just asking questions. And in fact, in the second half of verse 23, the subject does turn to prayer, and now you have a different Greek verb used to speak of asking in terms of making the request. So why would they ask no more questions of Jesus? We've already seen it. Look at verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the, declare to you the things that are to come. With the coming of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, all their questions would be answered. All of them. And we have some pretty impressive examples. For example, 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 11, Peter gives us our greatest level of detail concerning the future melting down of the old earth, the old heavens, at the end of all things. Found nowhere else in Scripture, the book of Revelation, which we read this morning. And of course, the latecomer, the Apostle Paul, he explains such things as the rapture, the Antichrist, the, the, the resurrection of believers. There is not one Bible verse in all of the New Testament where an apostle says, I'd love to answer this question, but I just don't know this one. He never says that. Every question is answered. And how about verse 24? Until now you have asked nothing in my name, asking you will receive that your joy may be full. This speaks of a time in which the disciples are not physically present with Christ and yet unprecedented access to God is now granted in prayer. This can only be the present age in which the Holy Spirit indwells the regenerate redeemed. And by the way, this short passage is set into the context of the larger farewell discourse which began in chapter 14, which is absolutely saturated with the topic of the Holy Spirit. So it should be no surprise to us that this is speaking of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, the nice thing about all three of these views, death or resurrection, ascension, second coming, or the coming of the Holy Spirit, the nice thing is that they're all good. They're all edifying to the soul. So if, if you get it wrong, you're really not off track. It's, it's okay. But it does seem that this third option concerning the coming of the Spirit of God is our best choice, and we need that to guide our thoughts for the rest of our time together. And although this is not a proof of any kind, I just like the third option. You want to know why? Because this is the time we're in. This is the time I'm in. We didn't personally go through the anguish of seeing Jesus crucified or the stunning surprise of the, of the empty tomb. We weren't there. And yes, our joy will be overwhelming when we see Jesus in person, but that's a future event, and I'm hurting now. We are, however, in the age of the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ among us and ministering to us. And so based on that view, but definitely giving a nod of respect to the other two views, I want to shift from our brain cell deductive thinking to simply letting this text minister to our hearts as we're being faithful to Christ at times of our own suffering and pain because part of the cost of following Christ is that we suffer currently. We do suffer currently. I needed this text this week. It it ministered to my own heart, not just for preparing this message, but just finding hope and strength because my life, like yours, is pockmarked with difficulties and with challenges. So how do we approach this for our own edification? 
Well, did you notice some fabulous words in this text? Verse 20, rejoice. Verse 20, joy. Verse 21, joy. Verse 22, rejoice. Verse 22, joy. Verse 24, joy. So you have rejoice, joy, joy. Rejoice, joy, joy. I think there's a message there, don't you? So for the remainder of our time, I want to encourage you in your pursuit of Christian joy. Because that's the only, the only antidote to sorrow. So here's what I want to do. What I want you to do. Look forward. Look upward. Look back. Look around. Look down. And look in. I shared that with my wife, Sylvia. She said it sounded like a neck exercise. And it sort of is. In a certain way. But as those possessing the spirit of Christ, those are the six things we're going to do. First of all, look forward. Look forward to seeing Christ. Look forward to seeing Christ. Now, we've leaned heavily toward the view that Jesus is speaking specifically of the coming of the Holy Spirit in verse 16, the spirit of Christ. But doesn't the phrase, in a little while, you will see Jesus, doesn't that bring joy to your heart? It does me. And we're on solid ground as taking this at least as an application because other passages directly connect our joy to looking forward to being united with Christ. Let me give you some aspects of being united with Christ for you to look forward to. Just three of them. First of all, look forward to his physical presence. Look forward to his physical presence. 1 Thessalonians four seventeen and 18 Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Just the very presence of Christ. There will be a moment in time that you will see Jesus. There will never again be a moment where you won't see him. Never. Look forward to his physical presence. Look forward to his transforming presence. Look forward to his transforming presence. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. It is the presence of Christ himself that will transform our sin nature utterly and completely. The presence of Christ himself, which will give us our Resurrection bodies with which to enjoy his presence for all eternity. And how about look forward to his rescuing presence? His rescuing presence. Hebrews 9.28 says that Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you eagerly waiting for him? Not salvation from sin, but being rescued from this sinful world. Can you imagine this? just, Just think about this for a moment. If you made a list in all your mind, in your mind of every trouble, every trial, every difficulty, everything hanging over your head, everything you're trying not to think about that you have to do tomorrow morning, and all of a sudden, that's done, that's done, that's done, that's done, that's done, that's done. Doesn't that feel good? That's fabulous. His rescuing presence. And in the meantime, how sweet it is that we have the Spirit of Christ indwelling us as a deposit of the guaranteed physical presence that we will enjoy with him. So not only look forward in your pursuit of Christian joy, look upward to your future home. Look upward to your future home. 
In verse 17, so some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me again and again a little while and you will see me and because I am going to the Father. As we've said, this is primarily a reference to the fact that because Jesus is going to the Father, the Holy Spirit is coming. But we're well within our rights hermeneutically to understand that in this same speech, in this very same talk, he made another reference to going to his father. You remember it? It was right at the very beginning. Flip back a page to chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, we went through that in detail a few months ago when we went through that text, but I want to approach it from a slightly different angle. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just about having your sins forgiven here and now. It's about preparing you. It's about qualifying you to be taken home to his father's house. And in fact, being in Christ gives you the right and gives you the privilege to look upward to your true home. I want to point out a key verse that helps us understand the certainty and the right that you have to look upward to your true home. And this verse is 1 Peter 1.4. You don't have to turn there. It's short. It says that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading Kept in heaven for you. Oh, these are important words. These are big words. We have an inheritance. Literally in Greek, you have a portion by law. That legally, the law of salvation is that once in Christ, you are never out of Christ. And once an heir of eternal life, you're always an heir of eternal life. It is the law of God. This is what the famous faithful of Hebrews 11 were looking forward to millennia ago. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. How glorious, how marvelous that is. Inheritance. Here's another important word we see in 1 Peter 1.4. This heavenly inheritance is imperishable. It's imperishable. It, it means incorruptible. It can't be corrupted from the inside out. It can't be spoiled. It can't be tarnished. It can't go bad, so to speak. The third important word, not only is it imperishable, our heavenly inheritance is undefiled. If, if it can't be corrupted from the inside out, undefiled means it can't be corrupted from the outside in. Heaven will never be invaded. Heaven will never be overthrown. Heaven is not concerned with the power of earth. Heaven will never be changed. And interestingly, our heavenly inheritance is also called unfading. It's a word that means it won't decay. Now, where does decay come from? Decay comes from the curse of sin. The curse of sin will never touch heaven. Not only will it 
never be spoiled from the inside out or from the outside in. It will never decay naturally. Heaven is just as perfect now as it was and always has been. Now, on this side of heaven, we don't have a record of what precisely it is actually like to enter heaven for the first time. I don't think words could really describe it. But I think we get a pretty good idea simply by what the Apostle Paul calls heaven. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, he calls heaven being home. Being home. Isn't that familiar? Isn't that kind? Well, in your pursuit of Christian joy, look forward. Look upward. Look back. Look back to the cross of Christ. Verse 20 Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. For the 23rd time in John's gospel, Jesus emphasizes the importance of what he's about to say with his truly, truly, amen, amen. Yes, yes, this is true. This is important. When Jesus is murdered, the disciples will weep, they'll lament, the Jewish crowds will rejoice. The very ones who shouted, crucify him. And when Jesus was raised, the disciples' sorrow will be turned to joy. But did you notice something here? This is odd. Jesus didn't say, your sorrow will be replaced by joy. He said, your sorrow will turn into joy. The Greek word is become joy. That which is sorrowful is also that which will now give you joy. It's not two different things. It's one thing. The very source of your sorrow is now the source of your joy. What is that? Well, that's the cross. That's the cross. And I think of poor old Peter, for example. He shamed himself at the very last by denying Christ three times while Christ was being interrogated and tortured. And yet, John 21 records the restoration and the forgiveness of Peter by by Jesus. The death of Christ was devastating for Peter. As far as he knew, all of his hopes and dreams were shattered because of the death of Christ. And not to mention that, they were very good friends. And yet, listen to what Jesus says about the result of Jesus dying on the cross. And of course, being raised from the dead. 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That which brought weeping and sorrow to Peter now is the very thing which brings him joy inexpressible. That is the cross. The beautiful first verse of Stephen Vicky Cook's hymn, I Will Glory in My Redeemer, it really explains this irony quite well that what has caused our sorrow is now the cause of our joy. I will glory in my Redeemer whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death. My only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. We even see this in the Lord's table. When we receive the Lord's Supper, it is in many ways a sorrowful celebration, is it not? Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails, but also I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death. So that which brought sorrow also brings us joy. I think sometimes 
maybe not meaning to. I think sometimes we tend to separate our salvation from the pursuit of daily joy. We separate the gospel from the goodness of God's comfort when in fact it's our salvation which is really the fountainhead of joy. It's the source of joy because it reminds us that every sorrow is temporary. I defy anyone to think of a sorrow that the gospel will not eventually eradicate. It doesn't exist. That as God's redeemed, the death blow of the sorrow and suffering has already been dealt. So look forward. Look upward. Look back at the cross. Look around. Look around for actual threats. Actual threats. Verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. The sweet comfort of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is impervious to outside influence. Yes, you will have times in which your emotion overwhelms you. Yes, you will have times when your spirit wants to crumple because of pain. And yes, there are situations where it feels like all of a sudden God has taken the gloves off and he's not playing fair anymore because he allows something into your life that you say that would should never have happened to me that's that's unfair god you're you're playing outside the boundaries and he reminds us that he is sovereign these are the surprise fiery trials that seem almost surreal you you have to do a double take is this really happening these are the trials which will grow you in your faith and if i could put it this way they will mark you and scar you for the rest of your life they just will The trials, which are the type that make you never again the same, where something in you changed, something has crossed over into territory from which there's no return. Yes, you will regain your spiritual equilibrium. Yes, you will walk through it in the strength that God provides. But you know in your heart that you're altered somehow. You're changed. You're different. You're not the same. Let me tell you how you're altered What the scars given by God will do for you, you will find in reality that there are no actual threats to you. They don't exist. Yes, now you're more broken. You're scarred. You're softened. You walk with a limp, just like Jacob in the book of Genesis. You're shattered. But what is that brokenness, that scarred nature, that soft nature, being shattered and broken and walking with a limp, And with the the pains and the reminders of those things, there's a word for those brokennesses. It's called Christ-likeness. Being like the Lord. And you discover what the Apostle Paul discovered and, and what he craved, what he longed for. Paul craved from Philippians 3.10 to know Christ and the power of his resurrection to share his sufferings. He longed for that. The early church understood that this present life is fraught with turmoil, filled with pain. Acts 14.22 records that in the cities of Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, the Apostle Paul was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And that sermon, by the way, was right after Paul had been stoned and left for dead. And so he was literally preaching those sermons in those cities with his arm in a sling and a bandage around his head. And over the course of his life, the Apostle Paul discovered something else, 
something he shared with us, that there's no actual threat to Christian joy. There is no threat. He said in Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Are there any actual threats to your joy? There's not. They don't exist. Look forward. Look upward. Look back. Look around. Look down. Look down at your Bibles. Look down at your Bibles. Remember that Jesus promised that with the coming of the Holy Spirit in verse 23, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Remember that? The disciples were given all that the Spirit would reveal to them, and we have all of that, which Acts chapter 2 calls the apostles' teaching. That promise is literally in your hand. In the New Testament, which of course also affirms the Old Testament, but, but I want to talk to you about the temptation that often comes to us in American evangelicalism. And that is the seeing of Scripture as just a negotiable, emotional, devotional. And that's it. To look up favorite verses here and there, to go for a, a quick little feeling to make you feel better in the instant. And this even, and this happens today, this, this goes to the practice of of opening your Bible, closing your eyes, and just hoping that you hit something. And then you say, as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. Okay, now how am I supposed to get comfort from that? You know, we never see that treatment of Scripture in Scripture itself, ever. And unfortunately, in typical American evangelicalism, since it would actually take time, and take effort to study and learn what the Bible is about. American evangelicals rely on others to write touchy-feely devotional guides. And some are good and based in the sound exegesis of Scripture, but almost all of them range from sappy to just heretical because it would be too much work for us to look for it for ourselves. So how does a hurting and suffering worshiper see or treat the Word of God? I want to show you in some detail. Keep your finger there and turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 49. Verse 49. Psalm 119, of course, is that glorious, massive psalm, 176 verses, extolling the virtues of God's word. And I just want to take one of the sections, one of the 22 sections, because this particular section, beginning in verse 49, has to do with how the word of God interacts and intersects with a suffering believer. Look at the richness of this suffering saint's interaction with the word of God. And I'm just going to make one point for every verse. Point number one, the scriptures are a source of hope. Scriptures are a source of hope. Verse 49, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This verb, you have made me hope. It's just one word in Hebrew. And you know this, this construction, this verb form says God has made him hope. God has done this for him. God has turned him into a person who is hopeful. And how has he done that? Through the word, through the scriptures. Here's a second point. The scriptures give future guarantees. The scriptures give future guarantees. Verse 50, this is my comfort and my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Now remember in the Psalms, very often when the writer speaks of receiving life, this isn't metaphorical for salvation. It's just survival. It's that you've given me life. I'm still alive. I'm still breathing. I'm still here. 
But with the fuller understanding of Scripture, we're reminded that no one takes our life in Christ away from us. No one can do that. Scripture and Scripture alone contains all those certain promises. Here's another point. The Scriptures strengthen our faithfulness. They strengthen our faithfulness. Verse 51, the insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. Though enemies and suffering try to make you doubt God, even doubt your loyalty to him, the Bible redoubles your strength, redoubles your resolve, redoubles your faithfulness. The scriptures provide spiritual stability. They provide spiritual stability. They're the rudder. Verse 52, when I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. The comfort comes from the fact that the word of God is never changing. It never has changed. It never will change. Here's another point. The scriptures fire up loyalty. Scriptures fire up loyalty. Verse 52, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Remember, your suffering is not just about your suffering. That's not what it's about. It's about testing your resolve to cling to Christ, to trust the Lord with all your heart. And the scriptures fire up that loyalty to stand firm in the midst of sorrow. How about this one? The scriptures accompany life. The scriptures accompany life. I've always said that your life ought to have a, a background score, a music to go with it. I just think that would be so cool. This does. Verse 54, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. This is the idea of the deep richness of the word of God so deeply embedded in you and in, in the course of your life into your routine, into what you do day after day, that it becomes like the accompaniment track. It becomes like music that accompanies your life. That when you travel and sojourn in a place that's harsh, that's unfamiliar, that's hard, the scriptures are the song that you sing. How about this one? The scriptures teach how to respond to sorrow. The scriptures teach how to respond to sorrow. Verse 55, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law in the nighttime darkness. The psalmist remembers and, and keeps his law. And this is exactly what the Apostle Peter told suffering saints when he was writing First Peter. The basic theme of First Peter is be holy and be obedient while you suffer. And finally, the scriptures are a source of blessing. They're a source of blessing. Verse 56, this blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. And you say, maybe I can't control my sorrow. Maybe I can't even control my emotional response to sorrow. But I can control how I humble myself. I can control how I obey the Lord while I'm suffering. And by the way, did you notice this? This is just a little treasure here. It's not that blessing comes as a result of obedience. The text doesn't say that. It says the obedience is the blessing. The fruit of faithfulness is a gift. Listen, I know I'm probably preaching mostly to the choir, but if you're not one prone to study and you tend toward a negotiable, emotional, devotional view of Scripture, study more. Make observations of the text Take one verse and see if you can find 10 things that encourage you. Instead of just looking for an emotional lift, avail yourself of every opportunity to look down to your Bibles. 
So in your pursuit of Christian joy, look forward, look upward, look back, look around, look down. One more, look in. Look in to the open doors of prayer. You can go back to John 16 now. Look into the open doors of prayer. You want a direct answer on how to pursue joy? This is about as direct answer as you're ever going to get. Verse 24 of John 16. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, asking you will receive that your what? Joy may be full. The disciples had not prayed in Jesus' name. Now, before you get on them for that, they didn't pray in Jesus' name because Jesus was standing right there. They didn't need to pray in Jesus' name. You do something in somebody's name who isn't with you. To pray to the Father in Jesus' name, it simply is speaking of the right given to the children of God who follow Christ to ask for the things Ask for things of the Father in Jesus' name, meaning on his behalf. These, Father, are things that I know from the word of God Jesus wants me to ask for. These, Father, are things from the word of God I know would be pleasing to him. We have the right to come to God to receive grace and help because of who Christ is, what he did for us, what he promised. Second Peter 1 4 says he has given us very great promises. And when we come to God with our requests, all you're doing is asking the Father to fulfill the promises he's already made. We've been pre-authorized to come by faith. Prayer to the Father is on the basis of the atoning work of Christ, which is now thrown open the doors of heaven for your access, for you to look in. We think often of the book of Esther when we think of this idea. Esther records the terrible disaster that was coming upon the Jews in Persia, They were about to be slaughtered by the trickery of wicked Haman. And the only hope they had was for the Jewish queen Esther to beseech the king for mercy on the Jews. But even the queen queen herself was not permitted to come into the king's inner court without being summoned. It was punishable by death. But by faith... Esther chose to take the risk. She declared in Esther 4.16, if I go, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther 5 records, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half my kingdom. She had won the king's favor. Listen, you have the right through the blood of Christ to look into the inner courts of the king of kings, And the golden scepter is always out. The king says, what is it, child of God? What is your request? It shall be given you anything that you ask in the name of my son. What a simple way to pursue joy. Pray in the will of God and get what you ask for. Now, the answer probably won't be precisely what you ask for. It might be more. It might be later. It might be different, but better. But you will, will receive an answer. You're very familiar with the great and humble 19th century English evangelist and orphanage director George Mueller. 
very encouraging to our hearts. He cared for 10,024 orphans in his lifetime. He established 117 Christian schools, and he never once made a request for financial support. He made a decision he would only pray. At one time in 1870, in the city of Bristol, he had five orphanage houses at one time caring for and feeding 1,722 orphans. In 1875, he began at the age of 70 a 17-year evangelism tour around the world and listened to his instruction on prayer. It's lengthy, but this is worth listening to. I have found it a great blessing to treasure up in the memory the answers God graciously gives me in answer to prayer. I have always kept a record to strengthen the memory. I advise the keeping of a little book. On one side, say the left-hand side, put down the petition and the date when you began to offer it. Let the opposite page be left blank to put down the answer in each case, and you will soon find how many answers you get. And thus you will be encouraged more and more. Your faith will be strengthened. And especially you will see what a lovely, bountiful, and gracious being God is. Your heart will go out more and more in love to God. And you will say, it is my heavenly father who has been so kind. I will trust in him. I will confide in him through his son. Mueller practiced what he preached in his prayer journal over his lifetime. He recorded over 50,000 answers to prayer. You do have sorrow. I know that. You have things that hurt so bad that you can't breathe. You have things that make you weep. You have things that make you not even feel like living your day. It's not just part of life, though. It's part of the Christian life. It's part of being crucified with Christ. It is part of sharing in his sufferings. But listen one more time to this tremendous promise. In fact, let's read it together. Chapter 16, verse 22. Read this with me. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we... Acknowledge that to follow Christ, it costs. It costs everything. When Jesus was on earth, he said openly, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Even as we are baptized, it symbolizes that we have died with Christ and we're raised with him. And so our lives as followers of Christ do have temporal sorrows to them, all under your sovereign plan, all which help produce Christ's likeness in us, and for that we're grateful. But sometimes in the moment it feels very, very hard. And so, Lord, I would pray for these precious brothers and sisters that in this moment, in this day, they would receive great encouragement and great comfort that Christian joy is ours any moment if we simply would look to you, if we would look to your word, if we would look to prayer, if we would remember that the Spirit of Christ himself indeed indwells us, looking forward to the coming of Christ, looking forward to our heavenly home, that in our very minds we can see through the information of Scripture our glorious future in which all sorrows are gone, every tear wiped away. 
Give comfort to those who need it the most. And Lord, for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl today who has not come to faith in Christ, who has not submitted to the Lord, who has not bent the knee, who has not repented of sin, I pray this would be the day, Holy Spirit, break their pride, break their arrogance, that they might in brokenness come before the cross and weeping over their own sin, ask for and receive the mercy that is given only through Jesus. Might this be the day in which they come to a salvation which is free, and yes, to suffer for a time with Christ, but then to go to glory for all eternity. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.